Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, a one-hour uncut conversation with the legendary Connie Coletta. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. It's audio no one's ever heard before, and it's amazing. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace. This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hello and welcome to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. I'm your host, Brian Loans, and this truly is a very special episode, one that uh, that required some clearance to actually publish and share with you. So what you're going to hear today is raw audio from an interview I conducted with Connie Coletta back in 2018. And originally, this interview was slated to be used for a magazine story about Connie. He was getting ready to celebrate his 60th anniversary in drag racing or was celebrating his 60th anniversary in drag racing at that point. And there was a lot of, uh, as there always is around Connie, a lot of great stories and history and kind of just momentous moments that were uh, being remembered about his career. Unfortunately, as we all know, the world of publishing kind of got pretty wacky over the course of late 2018 and through 2019, and the magazine story never saw the light of day. I saved the audio, though. So what you're going to hear is a long-form, one-hour interview, a sit-down with Connie Coletta. This is something that um, I'm not sure has ever been published in terms of the form, and the audio quality is fine. You'll be able to hear it. It's not as clear and crisp as it normally is when I have guests on because, frankly, I was recording this on my phone for use to transcribe and use when I wrote the story for the print magazines. The neat thing here is we cover a lot of ground with Connie. We talk about business, we talk about life, we talk about loss, we talk about success, we talk about his philosophy on different things, and we talk a lot about how he approaches not only drag racing, but the business that he has made into uh, globally one of the most successful, if not the most successful, cargo airlines that has ever existed. He is a very interesting man, and if you can if you can picture this, I'll set the scene that he and I were sitting in his office in Ypsilanti, Michigan, at the Willow Run Airport. There was a massive construction project going on, which has long since been completed, a hangar for his cargo jets, or a small portion of his cargo jets. And as we sit in his office, it is a wood-paneled office, pretty good size, maybe say maybe about 15 feet by 20 feet, something like that, enough room for a table and a couch along with his work desk. Lining the walls of the office are photos of not just airplanes, but also race cars and photos of Connie Coletta with basically every United States president for the last 30 years or so. Connie's business, as we all know, Coletta Air, is very, very involved with the government in many different facets. They don't just do public cargo. They do a lot of work for the government, whether it's the Department of Defense or other wings of the federal government. We know that they were involved in bringing American citizens home when the coronavirus first broke out in China. The flights that brought American citizens back were Coletta Air flights that were uh, converted cargo planes to fly passengers from China back to the United States. This, of course, is no surprise to anybody who's a drag racing fan. You know the backstory of Connie. And there's a lot of things that are going to come up in this interview that perhaps you did not know in terms of details about his life and of his drag racing career. This is a very unique opportunity that I got to do this interview, and I'm very glad to be able to share it with you today. Because as I said, there is not a single place on earth that has ever published an uncut interview with Connie Coletta that lasts roughly one hour. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this broadcast as we bring you Connie Coletta as you have never heard him before from 2018, uncut, uncut, unedited and very very honest 
A major thank you to Mac Tools and DHL for presenting the first 20 minutes of this interview with Connie Coletta. We're a business. Um, you know, I want to try to do something a little bit different than typical stuff that's been done before, so not uh, too off the wall, but I think one of the things I'd like to start with is when we look at not only your your racing career, but your business career, there's a level of almost like fearlessness to your life. You know, you've done these big things, and the, the stuff you've done in racing and in aviation. So I guess to start there, do you consider yourself kind of a fearless guy, or, or are there things that things no, you can't it's, it's not really like that, I don't think. Uh, what I've ended up with my life is I love what I do and do what I love. No, I love drag racing, and... Uh, I love doing business, and I'm very fortunate. I think I got the best of both worlds. I, I think that's pretty safe to say. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's pretty safe to say. When we talk about, I was you know reading a bunch of old interviews that you've done over the years, and there was a profile that Sports Illustrated did on you and Scott back in 1995, and you said that in your life, whether it's racing or business, you look at every situation like it's a book, and you read the book, and the book will tell you what to do. Uh, that's very true. It's, it's, uh, that's how I am today. I mean, <clears throat> you've got to let it tell you. Where did that come from? Where did you kind of develop that? I've got no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it just it's just a scenario that I've put together, and it's really told me what to do. And I'm fortunate enough, um, maintenance-wise, I'm very, I'm very knowledgeable about maintenance, and this all goes back to my drag racing. Sure. And I use the same philosophy in my aviation. I mean, <clears throat> uh, I'm very, very self-sufficient. We do, we do everything, sure, in-house, and I, that way, that way, I'm not at anybody's mercy. And on that point, you know, the facility you have up in Oscoda and, and all the guys you have up there and the certifications they have and the level that you keep that operation at, is that, for you, the most satisfying part of what you do and the most satisfying part of what you build? Well, it, it adds to the complexity to it. And it adds to the ability. With that, again, like I said, I'm, I'm in control of everything on it. And I... <clears throat> I don't have an outside entity that comes in and says, well, here's what you got to do and here's what you got to do. No, that ain't going to work. You know, I've never been that way. Uh, I've never had a job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to go through life, right? Oh, well, I think so. Yeah. How long is your longest tenured employee here? There's one. It's George. George is my longest employee. Probably 33, 34 years. And what is what's George's role? George, right now, he's working in the jet engine shop over in Dougie's facility. Yeah. He's uh, the biggest thing that he brought to the table was his ability to take and dismantle, make sure everything, all the parts are taken care of, and, and reassemble uh, a small little jet engine. That he first started out with on this thing, it's got 3,200 parts. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a watch. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty unique, and <clears throat> George has been just excellent like that. Knock on wood, I've never had an engine failure. 
That's uh, that's pretty incredible. And in the 30 years to me speaks volumes too, because you know we don't we really live in a world anymore where anybody stays anywhere very long. True. So to have somebody in with 30 years speaks to the organization, and obviously speaks to speaks to the way that people get treated here. You know, you're not going to keep a guy 30 years if you're beating him into the ground every week and he doesn't want to show up to work. I'm very fortunate with the people that I have. Uh-huh. And it's a two-way street. I've done just about everything everybody else is doing in the company at one point in time or another. As I grow, or as the company grew, I, I was part of it. So I understand the mechanics of it. And... Uh, I'm fortunate that when there's a problem, I can make I can make a good assumption of just what needs to be Informed decision, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. And uh, that that's a credence that lets the company keep on going. So on that vein, let's talk about late '90s. Kitty Hawk situation comes comes into play. This company that you built since you're a kid, you stepped away from it, and you you kind of have to stand there and watch the whole thing kind of come to pieces, you're able to get it back and then not not necessarily start from scratch, or maybe it was start from scratch. I guess your first day back in the seat after you got control of the company back, what was your mindset? Did you have the vision of what it is now, or was it simply a day-to-day try to fix it and move ahead? Well, when that all happened and it come back and I ended up getting the company back, <clears throat> I just wanted to make it what it was. And from there, it's just expanded. You know, business was there. More airplanes were there. I was able to take and purchase aircraft. Uh, it's like right now, I'm, I've only got two airplanes that I'm paying on. Everything else was free and clear. Yeah. So I have no debt, basically. And that in itself lets you take and expand. Oh, sure. I, you don't have to go to the bankers and say, all right, here's what I want to do, and here's what my reason is. Unless it's a lot of money. Right. I'm doing right now. So <laughs> I can eat these words, I guess. <laughs> uh, the economy is such that if you're going to expand, you need to do it when it's like this. Sure. And because uh, things are a lot easier to do. Money's very easy to get. Right. And, I mean, we've... I wasn't at these trade shows while my people go there, and there's, there's a lot of money out there. There's people that don't want to take and invest it. Um, what was the what was the hardest part of that period when you were away from the company? Obviously, is watching from the outside. I mean, you were probably seeing them do things that you knew were not going to work or make. Oh, it. I, I knew that. <clears throat> uh, the fellow that was was ahead of this. It was a public company, okay, mm-hmm. which. That's what gave me the desire to do it. But sure. <clears throat> Christopher, he he was a good salesman, and that was about it. He didn't understand people, mm-hmm. and that was his biggest downfall. You don't understand the people that work for you. You got a problem. You need to. And I treat people like I want to be treated. <clears throat> that that's the biggest fallacy that I've had. That using that formula, it's hard to go wrong. Sure. 
And let's talk about that fallacy. Where does that come from? Where does where does that idea come from that that you're that you're a you know tyrant that you're yelling at people that you're beating them into the ground? Where does that where does that start? Well, the whole basis for it is treating the people like you want to be treated. Sure. And then <clears throat> assembling a group of people that have the talent that you need, and that. They know they you know what that what they're capable of doing. You put you put the two of them together, and it's a win-win situation. Sure, whether it's the racetrack or here, it's the same. Right, it don't make any difference. Yeah. It's, it's it's a unique formula that <clears throat> I've probably watched other people do it. Gain for it, used what little I like like liked of it. And put it all together myself. Yeah, well, it's like I think it's anything. You take the pieces that you know. You take pieces from here and here, and you, and you build your own. Yeah, yeah. Put yeah. it together. Yeah. Um, let's go back a ways. Tell me about growing up. I mean, you grew up in Michigan. You know, I, don't, I don't know if a lot of people know what your first car was, what the first thing was you ever raced. I mean, go, let's go through some of that stuff. Your your young days. Well, actually, I lived on the other side of Detroit. I lived in a place called. I was in between Mount Clemens and New Baltimore, Michigan. And uh, that's um, that's where I got started, and actually, the drag racing is what really got me started into it. That that afforded me the fact that uh, I could buy an airplane. Sure, and I did, and I bought an airplane. And, and in fact, the fellow in 1964, 1962, I started flying. And uh, then it ended up on and off flying. And then in 1964, the fellow that taught me how to fly, he had a charter business and he had a 310 Cessna. And he hauled parts, all parts for Ford oh, Motor Company. Right. Okay. And, and he did very well at it. He made good money doing it. Well, I won a bunch of races out in California. March meet, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I bought an airplane, a 310 Cessna. I bought it from a fellow by the name of Ted Hildebrand. Ted Hil of, of Hildebrand Wheels? Yeah. Yes, okay. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize you bought it from Ted Hildebrand. Wow, yeah. okay. And, in fact, last week, some people that were relatives of Ted come up to me and talked to me and started. we started communicating about the fact that... Uh, that I had I had done this thing with Ted. That's incredible, yeah. I never knew that you bought the plane for Ted Hildebrand. That's yeah. incredible, yeah. That's where it was. And what was he doing with it? I he just it was a personal airplane. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, and as you know in the series, I went back like Ted did very well business. Oh sure. Very had an excellent product, and uh, every, off of that he had this 310 Cessna. And I can't remember how I ended up getting in touch with him about it. Anyway, it yeah. happened. Yeah. I bought the airplane, and I went back, and, and in 1965, I started racing for Ford. Yes, with the camera engines and the deal, yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> right upstairs from the race office was the Automotive Assembly Division Traffic Department. Okay. I went upstairs and made me some friends, <laughs> <laughs> and <clears throat> that's how I that's how I got started hauling the freight for Ford with with the airplane that I had bought. 
Did you ever deal with Henry Ford II or have any dealings or talking with him at all? With who? With the douche, Henry II? No. No, I don't know if you ever I don't know if you ever had any dealings with, with no, him. No, I, that, yeah. I never got that high. Yeah. <clears throat> but I did very well with Ford Ford. I was on the race team from 65 to 1970. 1970, the emissions... They redirected all their engineering, basically, Yeah, right? because, yeah. well, what had happened was that Ford didn't have the, the ability to certify the cars. They needed they needed some, some breathing room. Okay. And <clears throat> that's what they did. They took and closed the racing down, took their engineers, from the racing, because all the good engineers were all in the racing division, <laughs> and it was <clears throat> fellow that run it was fellow by the name of Jack Passanall at Ford, and then he had a person that worked for him. His name was John Colley, and there was a couple other people. A person that I really did the thing with Ford with his name was Charlie Gray. Okay, and. We formulated it, and uh, we started out with a camera. Well, it was a cute story that was involved in it. <coughs> Ford uh, said, so we got this camera engine, and how this all happened, why the, why the camera engine become available, was that Ford built it. NASCAR wouldn't let them run it. Right, yeah, before it was even done, basically, they kind of penciled yeah, it out. They, 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 right? they, they, they slammed the door on the yeah. word foot on the thing. So Ford was looking for something to do with this engine. <laughs> that they spent a lot of money on developing it. And uh, so it ended up in a drag race car. And there were, I mean, you, Pete Robinson, Perdome, I mean, there were several guys that, that went out there and actually... They seem to be a little on the temperamental side, but when they work, they seem to work pretty well. Oh yeah, it was a good piece of equipment. I mean, you use the basic engine, you put it together, and you put it in the car, and the car would run ten miles an hour faster because <clears throat> just because of the intake port on the single overhead cam. Sure, no push around the way. Yeah, it flows a lot of air, and uh, I put it in the car, and it just it just turned around and made everything turn around in my drag racing career on top of it. Because I ended up ruling the thing for a couple, two, three years where I was pretty hard to beat. You know, in 94 you went Indy, I'm sorry to bounce around, but some of the stuff kind of fits together. 94 you went Indy, obviously a, you know, big career moment. Was the first 200 in the NHRA event bigger than the Indy win for you, or what was bigger for you? It was about the same, you know. Winning the U.S. Nationals back then, and when you still were out there with the car, taking doing shows with it, uh, match racing with it, you needed something like that. Yeah. The magazines picked it up. I got good coverage in the magazines. Because it was a pretty unique engine. Sure. And uh, so I just jumped right in and made a run for it, and I've done good. And as we proceed with Connie's life story, thank you to Toyota, Mobile One, and Sealmaster for presenting the next section of Connie Coletta Wide Open. As hard as you were racing back then, how were you able to still fly, or what was going on? Like, during that period, you're out there barnstorming around the country, match racing all the time. What's the airplane situation at that point? Well, 
it becomes in the fall when things <clears throat> drag racing slows right down. So then I really started paying attention to the aviation thing, getting my licenses, building time, and uh, then it just kept on getting bigger, and I kept on getting more more ability to fly, and uh, that's how I ended up making a living. Yeah. When when you look back at the kind of growth of your drag racing career and the growth of the aviation side of your life, do they mirror each other in terms of, you know, obviously drag racing got you your first plane, but you're still barnstorming around these little tracks and everything as this other side of your life is growing. How have you been able to kind of keep both of them afloat? Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of hard work, I guess. Yeah. You know, I, I really, I really dedicated myself to doing it because I know it's where I wanted to go and where I wanted sure. to do, and uh, the tools were there. I just needed to make it happen. You know, you're graduated high school, kind of went right out into the world. You're not a guy that uh, you know sat around reading books and you know getting your PhD or anything like that. When you're coaching employees, when you're bringing people up through the company. What are the things you look for in people? Because obviously you're a very self-motivated, driven guy, and that's not that's not everybody's makeup. The <clears throat> the expansion of the company, I needed pilots because I was getting more airplanes. I was buying more airplanes, and um, just looking at the people that had the ability that were had a decent business head on their shoulders and had good pilot skills and. That's what I looked into, into people because that's what it took for me to take an expand. There is, I don't know if there's anybody in the world that has gotten as much from drag racing or had as much of their lives affected, positive or negative, than you. I mean, when you look at, again, the, the, gen, the genesis of all this started at the drag strip. Scott has his accident in 08. It's a question you've been asked a million times, but and I've seen your answer it. You said there really wasn't any thought of, of stepping away. There wasn't any thought of throwing your hands up and, and parking everything. Why is that? Because it's unique. I think there's a lot of people that would have just crawled into a hole and that would have been the end of it. You know, life goes on. <clears throat> and if there was a lot of trauma involved in it, it was <clears throat> it was a very, very ugly deal what happened when... Going forward, let's talk about your relationship with Doug. You know, it's a, I think it's a unique it's a unique deal because obviously, you know, he's right across the road down there with, with his company. You're over here. You guys have raced together for many years. What is your relationship with Doug, both business-wise, personally, and uh, at the racetrack? Well, you know, D Dougie, Dougie's racing thing versus his aviation thing, but his racing, I mean, he's he done very good with it, and he's an excellent driver, and... When we were all starting doing this thing that happened in the 1990s, um, I built a, uh, a couple of midget cars. Sure. And Dougie won the U.S. USAC championship two years, one or two years in a row, I think. Beat Tony Stewart, one of them. Right. Huh? I think he beat Tony Stewart for one of them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Which. Dougie's talent is unbelievable about as far as driving and stuff. He's really good and he's an excellent businessman. That's what <clears throat> that's what we've really put together for him. 
And he's picked the ball up and carried it and got a hell of a job. Do you foresee Doug carrying that ball well into the future in terms of business and racing? Well, I think he will. I mean, he's he's not tied to this company. Right. And I'm not tied to his company, all right? Sure, they're independent of each other. Independent completely of each other. And uh, we have a lot of discussions about things in business and acquisitions. I mean, he'll come to me or I'll go to him. And uh, we we discuss it. Sure. And a lot of good communication. I trust his judgment implicitly. Who did you admire as you were developing, not not just in drag racing, but in business? Who were the people in business that you've admired kind of over the course of your life? You know, I can't really answer that because I don't know. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, I just looked at what I was doing. Sure. Um, and I never really took anybody's lead. It was pretty much all my own ideas. Let, let, let's go to the drag racing side. You're a kid. You know, you're, you're, you've got your first real race car. And who's the guy that you're, I'm guessing it's Garlic at that time or Cook and Bedwell or those guys, late 50s, who are the people that you're reading about in the magazine saying that's, that's what I need to be, that's who I need well, to be? Well, Garlic was, was, was the largest one to do it. <clears throat> And in fact, I spent a lot of time with Don when he made the first trip out, out to California with this whole deal. Yep. I followed, I followed him and a fellow by the name of Seto Postonian sure. in Detroit. And Seto <clears throat> and Don, we met him in Texas and drove off to the West Coast. And I was driving along in my 57 Chevrolet doing it. And, and Seto was a guy that's got to be lost in history a little bit, but he was... He was as bad as anybody was at that era. Oh, he was. Yes, he had his act together. What was what was Garlic in that era to you? Was he Elvis? Was he a rock star? I mean, when you're when you're out there hanging out with him, is it or was he just a guy with a dragster that seemed to have a pretty good a pretty good idea? That was pretty much about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For you personally. When did you know that you could compete on the level with anybody in the country? Was it when you went out west and won the March meet and stuff like that? Yes. I mean, my West Coast deal was I was able to go out and conquer and and win. And back then, you made the cars run. It wasn't parts that you bought because you couldn't buy them. They weren't available. You made them and and made the engines so that it would tolerate it. Sure. Yeah, you're working with junkyard stuff, right? (laughs) Well, when, when I went to when I when I ended up with Ford as a sponsor, um, they said no, we don't like that aluminum rod at all. Okay, so I remember they made us. They, they said you need to make some steel rods. I said, well, the steel rod by itself ain't gonna work. And <clears throat> there was a fellow out in California that Don's boxed rods, and he made the plates and stuff and okay. the rods, right? So I got a set of rods for the Ford engine, put it in the engine and run it. Made one run with them, pulled them on out, and they had S-shapes to it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, when I went back to Ford and I sat down with them, I said, guys, this ain't going to work. <laughs> I said, this thing is bending right now, and it will break and blow this thing up. Yeah. And that's the last thing in the world I wanted to do. And I told him, I said, um, we need to make some aluminum rods. So 
what I had done, if you remember correctly, physically, the Ford, the 427 Ford, the crankshaft, had a bigger crank pin in diameter than what the Chrysler had. Correct. Yep. And they all had the same centers on the engine, mm -hmm. believe it or not. On the Four centers are all the same, okay. Right. So there was a material there. So there was a fellow in Detroit here that was in the crankshaft. His name was Bob Gillian. And I don't remember how I ended up getting tied up with Bob. But at any rate, he made me the first billet crank. Wow. And it was on in a 392 uh, Hemi engine, which is, that's at the time was what I had in the car. And so when when we got this Ford engine, and we had a problem with the rods and the bearings, and I went over there, and he says, Connie, why don't we just make these put a Chrysler?" Journal. Sure. Then he can run a crisis stuff, yeah. And, and I bought a set of rods that hadn't didn't have the pinhole in it and made them to the length that I wanted and put them in there with it with the Chrysler bearing. And everything was good? Everything was good. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I never heard that. That's really neat. Yeah, it was. It was the Ford bearing, it wouldn't tolerate it. Wouldn't handle it. Plus, they had a tri-metal bearing that was really nasty. Okay. It was done very well for the for the race engine and stuff, but it would not tolerate for it. A fuel, yeah, for a fuel engine, just not no, so much. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work. But I put it together, and it was just, it was a home-free deal. It's almost, you know, when you talk about guys, especially guys like you that drove front-engine top fuel cars, they, they we look at them now and go, oh, my God, how can anybody do this? But they all say, well, we didn't know any better. But when you when you mentioned before the last thing in the world you wanted to do was blow the motor up, was that because you didn't want to hurt the parts or because the thing was in your lap? Or uh, a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Leroy Goldstein, that was a picture that he was driving the car for the Ram Chargers. And they were they had a deal here in Detroit. And it was a picture that they had up on the wall. I don't know how they got it, but Larry Burns, uh, Larry Goldstein is driving their top fuel car. The thing is on fire. And he's got his hand up holding the fire away from his face. Yeah. And the butterflies are wide open. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Leroy, I didn't know any fear. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. He's really, he's really rocking, right? Yep. Um, who was the who was the best fighter? 1960s drag racing. Who was the guy that was always willing to scrap? Oh, I can't remember that. I don't know. So was it you know guys? Some guys like to talk about oh back in the day this that and the other thing and the, it's not really the same. I had people come at me and uh, they wanted to flex their muscles and I got a few hassles. Sure, and but I can't remember any of them to be honest with you. What, uh, got any good, you know, when you guys match race, the places you went to race were not anything like we see, obviously, today. Uh, there were some nice drag trips back then, but you guys ran at a lot of places that were, oh, yeah. It's like going to a two-lane road right. and going down a two-lane road, which they had some drag trips back, back in Tennessee and areas like that, and that's what you raced on. I remember doing match races at places like that. 
who was your most frequent match race competitor, or did you was it one of those deals where you kind of rolled in and whatever their best local gunfighter was, you took them on? That was it, and it would be the promoter. And if, if he had if he had a lot of money and no good common sense or had common sense, <laughs> he'd bring Garlis or somebody in like that to do a match race like that. And we both did very good. Talk about travel of that era too, because again, you're, you guys are on map books, two lane roads. You're pulling that car with a Ford station wagon, I'm guessing, right? What were you, what were you hauling that thing around with? Oh, I had a Ford station wagon, but the one that really worked the best for me was a Ford pickup. And in fact, when I was racing for Ford, they said, "Well, what kind of station wagon do you want?" I said, "I want a pickup." <laughs> okay. Well, I did that. But the unique part about it is this, because the Ford, Ford thing wasn't a strong deal motor-wise. Well, at engineering at Ford, they'd take cars apart and take engines out of cars and then scrap them when they got done with them. Well, I commandeered a couple of 429s. Oh, nice. Okay. And 420, 427s, I think. Anyway, I put that in the car, in, in my tow car. <laughs> plenty of guts. And my plenty of guts. And, yeah. and it was ideal. I mean, I got good mileage on the thing. Because uh, I basically ended up living in my pickup. Well, right. I mean, you spent that much time on the road, and you were a couple nights a week. I'm sure you're racing multiple times a week, so there's no yep. real time to stop and even catch your breath. Yep. How did it work as far as even keeping you replenished with parts? Now, obviously, you mentioned you didn't want to break the thing or blow it up, so I guess that's part of the equation is to keep it in one piece. But ultimately... As much as you're racing this thing, it's not like today you send them an email or shoot somebody a text message. I mean, how do you keep in contact at that point and keep yourself stocked up? Well, you know, like when I bought pistons. Well, in today's time, you buy a hundred. Back then, I bought took eight for the engine. I had two or four spares. Sure, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess yeah, it ought to fit the bed of the truck. I guess effectively, yep. right? Yeah. Um. When you sit down today and start looking at race pack data, did, does it ever flash back to the time when you're laying on your back in the dirt, you know, slipping bearings into the bottom of a motor? I mean, it's, it is not even in the same universe as to what it was when you first started. So you find yourself really on the cutting edge of what it is today. Do you ever kind of think back and go, man, this is out of hand, this has changed too much? I mean, what's your feeling? One of the things that we had back then is, you lost where you were at with what you were doing with the technology that you had, which was very little. <clears throat> you could get lost and be lost for six months real easy before you get yourself back onto it. And the biggest the biggest contributor to it was a supercharger. Okay. Um, because that was the air pump. Well, <clears throat> back then, we the blowers we had on it was a 671 GMC blower. Sure. And... Then they ended up making an 871. And then we started making, when they started making rotors back then, I can't remember who, who made them, but we made them longer, made the cases longer, because back then we, we used to use the cases that you had. But yeah, you needed to use the, the GM case, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. that. And, and, you know, because you, know, you didn't have the money to build something like that <laughs> right. back then. But we ended up doing it later on, and those parts become available because the guys that were out there building them in their backyard with a couple of pieces of machinery, and they kept on growing, 
So we got better parts, and we kept on getting better parts. And <clears throat> we started we started and ended up making more horsepower, more percentage of nitro. And the real governing body back then was a tire. Sure. Um, first person to come with a tire was M and H. It was a fellow by the name of Marvin Rifkin. Watertown, Massachusetts. Watertown, Massachusetts. And um, Marvin was one of the first with the, with the drag race tire. And I did all the testing for him. Well, then Goodyear stepped up. They come on down the road. And, uh, the Goodyear deal was a lot better than Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> We did very well with the tire. They they had a good engineering group, understood it, and then as as the years grew, they grew with it, as you can see as to what we have today. Sure. And uh, that all the first person that worked at Goodyear that I dealt with was a fellow by the name of Royal Corrigan. He was an engineer. He'd come to the drag races, and that's how things got started with me and Goodyear. Wow. Double back, you know, Rifkin, I think, is a neat story because, you know, he was the little guy, and he ultimately ends up getting overshadowed by everybody else because he was the little guy. But, you know, Marv, to his credit, really kind of pushed those guys along. You know, he pushed he pushed Goodyear and Firestone, at least in my opinion, to, to develop a better product because they don't want to be shown up by some guy with a crummy little warehouse in Massachusetts. Right. Yeah, that's where it was in the... Uh, the plant was, was in Ohio. Okay. That's where the tire was made. That's where m and had the tire made. And previous to that, you're running basically recaps, right? You're running yeah. the hard sidewall recaps. What was the, do you remember off the top of your head, the first time you put a set of M&H's on and went out, like, did it just feel completely different or was it, is it more of a, a slow step of evolution? Yeah, I don't remember yeah. the details. Okay. Because it went on for a couple of years. What uh, what is your favorite part of your role in drag racing today? What is you know what is the thing that you sit there and you obviously winning? Uh, I'll probably put that at the top. But in terms of what you do on a weekend to weekend basis with the race car, what gives you the most enjoyment there? It does making the cars do what I do. Yeah, and uh, making those decisions, good or bad. Sure. You know that's been going on forever. Right. Right. <laughs> And and that's another thing where you've been at this now for more than 50 years, and it's and it's still hard, and it still changes every weekend, doesn't it? Oh yeah, it does. It's circumstances, surroundings, racetracks. Just looking at the racetrack we had this last weekend with yeah. 143 degree racetrack, hottest we've ever had that I know of, and uh, to try and get the car to go down the racetrack was just a feat all by itself. Right. When people, fans, see you in the pits or say hello, what's the most common thing they want to talk to you about or ask you about or, you know, what's the what's the one thing you hear more than anything else? Oh, do you remember when we was at this race, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that's that's the most yeah. common thing, right? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. vaguely remember. Remember like it was yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We live in a world today where, you know, guys get famous for running their miles and guys get famous for making a splash and stuff. And you were a half a century ahead of the curve with, you know, having dude's names painted on your race car that you were able to, to strike out. There were people that really didn't like that at the time. Well, I think Carlos was really, he, uh, he got all after me. He said, 
you know, take your name, take my name off your car. And I said, get your own goddamn work. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't like it. Yeah, it's got him up pretty good. Yeah. Um, that's actually pretty great. <laughs> get your own goddamn work. John Lundberg, long-time drag oh, racing yeah. announcer, great guy, yeah. wanted me to specifically ask you about flying nitroglycerin to an oil fire. And with that teaser, we begin to embark on the third and final section of this interview with Connie Coletta. Thanks to NGK Spark Plugs and Wix Filters for bringing us the final conclusion and the final amazing stories of one of drag racing's true treasures, Mr. Connie Coletta. What I did was this. I, I made a trip, in fact, with that airplane right there. Okay. Uh, business was bad. I was half broke, and I needed some money to do it. And it wasn't nitroglycerin. I don't know what it was. <laughs> it was what they call oil shot. Okay. I put it down in the well, and it was for fracking. Okay. That's when fracking first got started. And they needed some of this material in off the, in, in Europe. And it was off it was L D Holland where I actually landed the airplane and dropped the dropped the product off and it was for doing oil doing the fracking in the oil well industry. And yeah, I I hauled four thousand pounds of that stuff over there. Man. And obviously, uh you know, some of the stories that have surfaced over the years, or, or maybe they're tall tales and you can dispel them or not, but, oh, you know, he gets up over the ocean and sets it on autopilot and goes to sleep. Was that was any of that ever true? Uh, I probably snoozed off a little bit. <laughs> I mean, flying an airplane when you're doing that, it's boring as ever. Right. I mean, you sit there and you do nothing, right? <laughs> and, uh, no, and there's no physical movement at all. You just sit there in the seat and making sure this thing does what you want it to do. But yes, I took very good care of my autopilot. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the first airplane you ever saw as a kid? Oh, no, I don't. Yeah. No idea. Just because to me, it seems like a, this seems like a business that you get in, one, because you obviously love to fly. I mean, that's and that's something that is interesting to me because something in you saw an airplane or, I mean, as much as you saw the guy, hey, this guy's making a pretty good living with a plane, there's also another aspect of it of actually getting up there and doing it. So I didn't know if there was any sort of, as a kid, you just loved airplanes or loved aviation. No, I got into the aviation thing because I, I saw it was a way of making money, sure. making a living. Because I was, you know, I was living in the back of my station wagon or my pickup truck, one or the other, running around the country doing match races. Yeah. And this ain't going to work forever. <laughs> If it hadn't been drag racing or aviation, what what do you think it would have been for you? I got no idea. Yeah, there's no other pot. Yeah, and that's and that's a great answer because it really. And I don't know if any any of us could even think of that because you're so you're so deeply ingrained in this stuff. Yeah, you 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 end up with a tunnel vision on what you want to do or where you want to go. No, I don't remember that. What uh, any sort of advice you got either drag racing or otherwise that ever that stuck with you for a long time? You know, anybody ever pull you aside and tell you something that you were able to apply in your life, whether when you were a kid or older? Not really. I, I mean, you have a lot of idle chatter with people, and 
people come up and want to talk to you. And, sure. Um, I'll never forget one time a fella come up to me at a drink strip. I don't know whether it was at Indy or where it was, but he was from Germany. And the fuel that we use today, the Germans invented it. It was invented in the 1930s. And what they invented it for was more than one reason. They, they had a car called the Auto Union. Auto Union, sure, now Audi, but yeah, Auto Union back then. It, yeah. was, it was an unbelievable car. It was a four-wheel drive car. And it made some real horsepower. Well, where the horsepower come from was this product called nitromethane that the Germans invented. The person does—it's it, not a petroleum product, believe it or not. Propane, right? Huh? It doesn't start with, it comes down from it, propane or something. Something out of the propane okay. line, I But at any rate, they invented it, and they used that material in the torpedoes and the submarines. Wow. The reason they did this is that it needed no oxygen. Okay. They had a four-cylinder reciprocating engine in the torpedo. And <clears throat> back then, the only, thing, you know, the other one was electric with a bunch of batteries right. in it. Well, <clears throat> they come with this nitromethane and they put it in the torpedoes. Because it'd go into water and it didn't need no oxygen. Jeez Louise. And, and that's how they come about. Well, then, then the um, the racing fraternity brought their auto union in, started running nitromethane in it. Well, then, in, in the war, the ME-109 fighter airplanes the Germans had, they used nitromethane for acceleration for... Uh, I didn't realize that. Yes. Yeah. They injected they injected into it for emergency power. Okay. I could get about thirty seconds of it. And uh, I mean it'd run away from a P fifty one. I was gonna say probably like it was sitting still, yeah. 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 Because of you know, it's all not And that's that's what, how it ended up coming out of it. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And then, you know, the hot rodders obviously in the forties start screwing around with it on the and the over here in the dry lakes and all that kind of stuff, and it ends up uh, we end up with what we have today, which is uh, <laughs> which is beyond ridiculous. Yep. If um, racing or business, pick one, either one's fine. One mistake you made that you learned from on either side of it. Mm, you know, I don't really have an answer for you on that. I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> nothing really, sure. nothing really raised his yeah. head. Um, would I have done things different? Yeah, I'm sure I would have. Because there was nobody else out there. I was doing, I was doing my own thing because there was nobody to follow. Right. It, it, it didn't exist. The cargo side of aviation, you know, doesn't have the, uh, at least outwardly, have the, you know, allure of, you know, uh, passenger flight or whatever in terms of, um, no one's like, no one's making movies about uh, about guys flying cargo around, right? Or at least no, it, it was all the flying that you did was at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the biggest thing, which it still is today because 
all your all, all the overnight passengers, all the overnight freighters. It's all done at night. Yeah, and and I guess let's speak to that a little bit because someone will call you now, right, and say, "I need to get this from where they need to get it to tomorrow," and you're able to respond that quickly. I mean, what is in a, in a worst case scenario for someone calling you up saying, "I need to do this as quickly as possible"? How fast can you get something put together? I have, I have a. Um, operation a person out in California that does all my marketing and yes we do this weekly or daily yeah because of the amount of airplanes I've got so I've got airplanes that, that do night flying that I can fly during the day so yes that does happen you you know famously um, after 9-11 happens the only plane in the sky that was not an F-16 in the United States was one of yours flying yes. relief supplies you've had a long-time relationship, as I understand it, with the government via the Department of Defense or other other stuff. Talk about that a little bit, because it would seem to me that to even start that relationship, and as long as you've kept it, is a very interesting thing, because as we all know, politically everything changes and turns over every couple of years, and yet you guys have been a constant. So as much as you can, talk about that a little bit. Uh, we do a lot of stuff that's... Let me... Let me tell you a little what, what you can do with an airplane, okay? I've got a certificate that the Federal Aviation Agency gives me, and I I tell them how I'm going to do it, and they finally bless it. <clears throat> There's also another use that you can do. You can take the airplane out of the FAA's environment and go to what we call a public-use airplane. So you have no rules. Okay. You can do whatever you want. And <clears throat> I've done that several times. Um, we did one here just a couple of weeks ago, matter of fact. I won't elaborate on it. Sure. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, we still do it. There was a story I heard, and confirm or not, but you and Doug bought a plane, I think, out of the Boneyard or somewhere down in Arizona, and... I guess kind of flew it from there to here, but big plane, low altitude flight the whole way back, and it was a plane you guys obviously converted in for cargo use. Yeah, I can't remember that one, but uh, yes, we have. Um, <clears throat> the Arizona barnyards is what you want to call it, or boneyards for the airplanes. Um, There'd be equipment and engines and stuff that you that you can go into and be parked airplanes. And there's still a lot of them out there. I mean, you go to Victorville, California. There's a big big parking lot out there. There's <laughs> some in Miranda, Arizona, and uh, <clears throat> a couple other places in the country because of the dry conditions. And it's the best place to park an aluminum airplane. The stuff you said now you're working on a big expansion or working on at least big financially a big uh, a big purchase or more airplanes. You know, you're an 80 year old guy. You don't have to be doing this anymore, but you do. You know, you're you know you're you're working on stuff that will likely be paying dividends long after you're around to see it, right? It's almost like building a cathedral. Well, the, guys that, the guys that built cathedrals that took 50, 60 years to build, the guys that started at the bottom never actually saw the thing finished. But it seems to me, even at 80 years old, 
you're still working on stuff that, that's going to be paying dividends for a decade plus. Well, I'm working on a project right now, and when you drive back out through the through the airport, you see a operation on the field that's out there that's nothing. Well, nine months from now, you'll sit there and there'll be a 747 hangar sitting there. Wow. So, yep, I'm expanding. I'm 80. I'm Really got my good health, hopefully knock on wood, and uh, I look forward to it. What were your mom and dad like? What did your dad do? Uh, dad was he was a farmer to start off with, and uh, then he worked for the Detroit uh, Street Railway System, and uh, that was pretty much what he did. And then he built, when he retired from that, he built a hardware, had a hardware store. Then he got into selling propane. Okay. Which I grew up doing it, driving it, and peddling it for my dad. All of propane. All of propane. So, you know, some of the lessons he ingrained in you, obviously the guy seems like a hard worker, and he's, you know, setting up businesses, operating a farm. What are the things that you took away from, took away from your dad? I, I don't really know. I'm probably just good common sense. Yeah. That's, uh, he worked hard and paid off. Absolutely. Yeah. Don Garlis and Wally Parks had a very strange relationship. Uh, you know, the 50th anniversary NHRA book comes out, and Don's name isn't mentioned once in it. You know, and it was almost like a, a weird parting shot, I think, from Wally. What was your relationship with Wally during that during that era? I didn't have any problem with it. Yeah, you know, uh, Ronald's got a different different bag of tools he carries around, <laughs> 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 and um, he, he, he he could set off the pole. Yeah. <laughs> what was for you? Back in those days, because we live in a world now where there's 24 national events a year. It's just that's just what it is. Obviously, you know, you start in an era where there's a handful, then it kind of expands. Was it that much different, say, in 1967, to go to an NHRA national event than it was to do anything else? Uh, you know, they did deals around the country when I first got started. That's what Wally Wally really put together. Sure. You know, safety safari, yeah. they called the thing. They had a small trailer and they towed them with a station yeah. wagon. And uh, they went around to different events. And that was, a, that was the infancy mm -hmm. of NHRA at the time, in which with good management and smart, smart ideas and stuff, that's what, um, that's what transpired out of it. During that time, I'm guessing you ran some AHRA stuff too, and then IHRA when it came around. I know you participated in, but what about Jim Tice? Because Jim Tice was the opposite of Wally in many ways, right? Jim Tice was more of a showman. He would, you know, you showed up with some weird car, he'd kind of make a class to stick you in there. Did you ever deal with, with Tice at all? Not really. Not, I can remember. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I, I, I'm sure I had some business dealings with him because he paid. He paid to come and run uh, yeah. to run the car where an HRA wouldn't. Right. Yeah, there was appearance money there, or at least some guaranteed tow money to yeah, even get you in the gate. Yeah, I mean, you was living out of a suitcase anyways when you were doing it, so any little bit helped. 
I think one of the things, you know, modern drag racing fans don't understand how different an event is for the teams these days. Back in the day, one, there was no sort of order for qualifying, right? Everyone just kind of rolled into the lanes whenever they could. You made your runs, and you kind of fell where the chips were. It wasn't like today, very laid-out sessions. But the other thing I think is interesting is you guys would have to load your stuff up and leave every afternoon, right? Everybody. Oh, yeah, and yeah. take it back to the hotel, would you? You got any good hotel stories? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> that are publishable, anyway. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean... It, it had to have been exhausting. That that lifestyle then, and I know you're a young guy, but that had to have been an exhausting way to spend a couple of years of your life just constantly moving. Well, I didn't have anybody to work for me. When I got to the racetrack, I had to get somebody to push, drive the push car and start me. That was real. Trust me. That was <laughs> put somebody in a push car. All right, we're going to start this thing up. Yeah, you, your only hand signal is either this That's or this, it. right? <laughs> right. That was it. What's been the biggest advancement for you personally, you know, dealing as you have with the sport really since it started to now, and now dealing really on the technical side of things, tuning the race cars, what's been the biggest advancement in your mind? Well, the biggest advancement, I think, is the computers that we have. The, it's not a computer, it's a data collection sure. device. Uh, and going back and evaluating, because back then, when you drove the car, you were going by the feet, feet of your pants as to what the car's doing. You didn't know whether the thing was spinning the tires or what. Well, the tire, actually, when you, back then, you drive the car, and you could take and see how much smoke was coming off the top of the tire. And you just barely wanted it to come off because that, the tire wasn't going crazy on the slippage. And you'd actually drive by watching the how much how much smoke was coming off the tar. What's the what's your favorite car that you had over the course of your career? Oh the car I had in nineteen fifty seven. That that really was the one that made a big difference, you know, my whole life because it advanced me. Let's put it like that. The first time you sat in that thing and went down the racetrack, was it nerves? Was it excitement? Was it oh my god, what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I, but I grew with it. You know, the, my first dragster went 126 miles an hour. You know, so then it just grew from that. It was continuous growth, and I grew with it, knowing that you know, I kept on going faster and faster, and and you couldn't go someplace and buy a car. You had to build a short. You know, I mean, I'd buy a bunch of tubing. And, I actually built the car in my garage. Several of them. You obviously saw drag racing as you see a lot of things as a business. You you know, you were getting paid to run match races, you were making a living at it. Did you suspect that it would turn into a professional sport, you know? I had no idea where it was going. Yeah. Like that. It was just you know <clears throat> there wasn't the communication like there is now. I mean there was very very little communication back in the sixties. Yeah, you had to rely on drag news or whatever the hearsay yeah, was. Yeah, that the day, was the right? only one. What was her name? Doris Herbert. Doris, yeah. Yep, yep. Chet Herbert's sister. Yeah. And uh, she had, was it drag news? Yeah, she was She was drag news. and this, I mean, there was a couple of them, but Doris Herbert was the editor of drag news. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What about, 
Were your parents initially supportive of you being a hot rodder and you mess around with cars? Because that's the era that was, you know, seen as kind of a socially not good thing to do. Well, that was a little rub with me and my dad. He wanted me to take over the business. I want to go drive right now. <laughs> so you can see where it ends up. Seems to seem to work out okay. Right. Yeah, it seems to work out all right. Yep. A couple years ago, the car that's shown behind us was uh, restored, recreated. I'm not sure exactly if it was a restored. Yeah, I restored, restored. Car, yeah. And it was, you were shown as a surprise. Was it something that, what was your initial emotion of seeing that car when they pulled the cover off in oh, a beautiful state? That uh, was, was a good feeling. You know, brought back a lot of memories, a lot of, a lot of part of my life that put me where I'm at today. Who's been your best friend or ally in drag racing? I don't really know that anybody won specifically. There's a lot of a lot of help from everybody. Um, I can't really I can't really answer that honestly. Maybe that's a good thing because there's been so many of them. Yeah, I've had a lot. Of, I've had a lot of help in life. People have been very, very good to me. Let's put it like that. What is the best relationship a driver and a crew chief can have in your experience? Is it is it just a working relationship? Is it pal? What is the best, in your opinion, relationship between a driver and a crew chief? Respect. You respect the driver for what he can do. The driver respects the mechanic for what he does. That's uh, that's something we take and deal with at every race. Sure. It doesn't change. It's still there. As a person who is a manager of people, a lot of people, runs a, runs a business, what is the best mentality a crew chief can have? Because I, I think one of the things that we don't do a good job of in drag racing is talking about the role that a crew chief has as a coach and a manager on we look at the crew chief and go, oh, he put the tune-up in the car, and it went 390, great, they won the round. But there's six days out of the week that that guy is also in charge of a group of people, his, his team. So what makes a successful crew chief? And I don't mean in terms of turning the knobs and screws. I mean in terms of keeping a team together. Uh, first off, you've got a personality thing that you've got to deal with. You've got, got to have helpers. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I think we got probably... I've got four teams, but I think there's probably nine people on each team, nine yep. or ten. <clears throat> and coordinating that, first off, keeping that keeping that going on the straight and narrow, because they live together going down the road. I mean, they spend more time with, you know, with the drag race car than they do, they do with your wife, for sure. Not loud. That's just the nature of the beast. And that, that has its own little entity that you need to take and take care of. Just about daily, but it's, it's just part of doing it. So you do it. What at what year in your career did you end up having a crew per se? When you weren't just the guy in the station wagon? When did it? When did you look up and go, "Oh, we have three guys here"? <laughs> you know, when did that? When did that kind of turn for you? I can't remember when it did. Yeah, it just become more sophisticated where you needed. The biggest thing is because you start straining the parts harder, all right, then that becomes a factor that you you need to take and dismantle the car. Sure. 
you know, before we never, I mean, at night you probably put the, put the car, jacked the front of the car up and got underneath it and dropped the oil pan, checked the bearings, make sure that nothing, nothing stupid happening, right? Yeah. That was about it. Put it back together, put the pan back on it and put oil in it. Yeah, the weekend, we're watching some videos, the weekend in 88 when Eddie Hill made the, you know, made the first four second pass, they didn't take the sonar heads off the engine once that weekend. Fuzzy would pull the bearings out, he would read the bearings, and they would kind of tell him what was going on. And now, obviously, that's that's not even a thought. You know, you, there, nobody in their right mind would run one of these cars and not be taking the heads off and not be pulling everything apart for inspection. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, <clears throat> it's a smart thing. Because when you ask this engine to make six... Eight, ten thousand horsepower because you're continually generating more ways to take and um, make that kind of power with it. The attrition on the parts, it only sees this thing for four seconds. They can do a lot of damage in four seconds. Again. You look cross sided at it and you got a pile of junk. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the great things about your life and the fact that you have these machines at your company that are designed to run for hundreds, thousands of hours in the air, and the other side of your life is a machine that never leaves the ground and is designed to hopefully run for four seconds at a time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting to make it happen. And doubling back on the maintenance, I mean, obviously your life is dependent, your company is dependent on the, on the ability of these, your airplanes to be in the air. So it does actually lend itself to one another. The, Definitely. The inspection process or the, the, the regulations you have in your guys to keep the aviation engines up, it's going to translate. You use the same thing. You, you know, you put, you put levels that this thing, this part will take and go to and not have a problem. Well, you've got a part that if you, if you really lean on it hard, you better check it every run because you start it again and it won't make it. Just like the pistons. That's why you take the pistons out. Um, that's a volatile part. Sure. The ring lens are a very volatile part. And say it pinches a ring. Well, then what that does, that piston starts pumping oil. Nitromethane and oil don't not get along. <laughs> not at all. If you could wave a wand and change one thing about the current state of drag racing right now, you snap your fingers and whatever this is changes, what would it be? I, I like what we're doing right now. I, I don't have any um, great magic wand ideas, to be honest with you. I mean, <coughs> we, squeeze, we squeeze the thing pretty tight. The new track prep's been the big topic, and everyone's been, you know, back and, and forth that, on it. That's that's one of the things that we're really trying to orchestrate so that the track prep, because <clears throat> I go back to the pits with my car, and I think, well, I've been out on this racetrack, and it let me do this, this, and this. Now, what's going to happen when the sun goes down? All of a sudden, this racetrack leaves at least 20 degrees of temperature, which tire really like. Right. 
entire really life. Uh, <coughs> that way, that way you you can take and build build the vehicle to take care of the tire or the racetrack. And we are we are achieving some ground on that as to when, how many times they spray the racetrack. Sure. So that's one thing that we're really, and it's coming together, and I think it, it, it's made some very good strides just over the last couple of months. And some people's change, change in the picture. You know, we're losing Graham Light here at the end of the mm -hmm. year, and uh, that'll, that'll be a huge loss for us. Yeah, you know, Graham, Graham's job is, I always tell Graham his job is to get the arrow shot in his ass, right? It's, you know, he's, he makes decisions that one way or the next are going to piss off 50% of the people, but he's a racer. He's, he's run, he's run top fuel cars. He's run he's race He's done everything. Yeah. And, like, that's why I say that we'll be losing a very, very strong entity. He's got a lot of good common sense. And that's what, and, and he's earned it. Sure. What still gets you up in the morning at 80 to come in and do this? I just look forward to it. Yeah. You know, I, I enjoy keeping running the business, and it's got gratitude, and I feel good about it. And I guess, uh, you know, I'm run through a lot of material here, and the one, I guess the one last question I would ask is 20 years from now, 10 years from now, Where's Coletta Motorsports at, and where's and where's Coletta Air at? Well, Coletta Air is a, it's a, it's set up. Uh, so if something happens to me tomorrow, I mean, I, I got pretty sick here a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, and this baby never missed a leg. Says a lot. Yeah, that says a lot about about the people you have around you. Yeah, I had I was 110 days in a coma. So I miss Christmas and everything. <laughs> <laughs> you did, we missed you. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, you know, there are some there are some people that are gratified by hearing, "Oh, everything fell apart when you weren't here," which I don't think is which I don't think is a very that's no, not actually a great statement. The, the outcome, it, the proof was in the was was the final proof. Sure. It 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 just kept on trucking just like it needed to. Same can be said for the race team? Yes. Yes. Same thing. Very, very cool. Awesome. Yeah. No, I think, uh, appreciate, I really, sincerely appreciate you taking the time. Not a problem. Pleasure to sit down with you. And I know you got a million things going on, so I don't want to keep you all day, but it was great. Awesome. And so there you have it, a one-hour conversation with Connie Coletta that covered pretty much every topic I could think of covering from his childhood to who his parents were to how he got into aviation. And one of the things to correct uh, myself on in that interview was we talked about where he got his first plane and the name Ted Haldebrand was coming up. That was, of course, Ted Halibrand, the famous manufacturer of magnesium wheels during the 1960s, maker of some of the most iconic wheels, not only for drag racing, but also in IndyCar racing as well. Uh, just so much information and such a guy to be able to sit down and share that stuff. And yes, it was made in 2018, but the things he's saying, the things he's talking about are very cogent into the world of drag racing right now and certainly into the time in the sports history that we have been in 
over the last several months. Connie Coletta continues to be at the racetrack virtually every weekend of the year. When we are racing, he continues to have a hands-on role in tuning a top fuel dragster, that car this year being driven by Sean Langdon. It was a pleasure to sit down with Connie, a real honor to spend that time with him in his office, and I hope you've enjoyed this tour and look into his life, into his background, into what makes one of these great businessmen and drag racers click. Connie Collette is a true American original. It's a pleasure to have his audio here in the NHRA Insider Podcast. We'll see you next time.